How many of you have seen that movie, Bruce Almighty? Yes, look at that, eh? Spiritual people, aren't you? <laughs> and of course, you know the sequel is coming out this year, Evan Almighty. It's going to be classic, classic. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. You know that part from the movie? It's good. Okay, didn't go down so well. That's coming out for the second service. All right, very good. Tough crowd this morning, clearly. Getting going, getting going. So, the reason that I played that clip this morning is because it is something of a commentary on the psalm that we are going to look at this morning. And so we interspersed it with the text of Psalm 13. It's almost as if Psalm 13 kind of provides like the subtext of, of that plot. It's, it's a narrative version of what's going on in that psalm. So if you have a Bible, turn over there, Psalm 13. And if you've been uh, working through this series with us, you know that uh, we've been exploring different types of psalms, some of the highs in the book of Psalms and some of the lowest lows. And really this morning, it'd be fair to say this is probably the lowest point in the entire journey that we are going to do. We've got a couple more weeks left, but we've really hit the low point. And uh, this psalm is just a real cry from the bottom of the pit in King David's life. Let's read it together. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. It's a bit of an awkward psalm, really, don't you think? It doesn't, in a way, it doesn't really seem to fit with a lot of the other stuff that's going on in the book of Psalms. We, we kind of have this perception, I think, that Psalms is generally this upbeat, happy, clappy book. It's all praise. It's all thanksgiving. And then you get to a psalm like this, and it's almost a little bit embarrassing. Where's this coming from? This is kind of down in the doldrums. I mean, David gets a little bit more positive by the end of the psalm, but for the most part, this is very, very low. This is very, very dark. In fact, the reality is that 70% of the book of Psalms is like this. 70% of this entire book is in the genre, falls into the category of what we call Psalms of Lament. And a lament is just somebody pouring out their heart before God. These guys did not mince their words when they talked to God. If things were going badly in their life, they just let it all out, you know, just like, just like Bruce. It just came out. It wasn't edited. It wasn't scripted. It wasn't a PR job. It was just here is the reality of life. And 70% of the book of Psalms take this form of these deep, dark cries of human despair and agony and pain and struggle. And what is more, there's an entire book in the Bible called the Book of Lamentations, which is one big, massive lament. So this idea we have that the Scriptures are always positive, always on the front foot, always on this highest of highs, just doesn't square with what you actually find on the pages of Psalms. And if Psalms represents really the, the deepest cry of the human heart to a holy God, it tells us something, doesn't it, about the human condition. It tells us something about what's dear and near to the human heart, that this pain, this suffering, this anguish, this turmoil is central to what it means to be human, central to the human experience. 
that the reality of life is that things are tough. And there is this perception that gets trotted around Christian circles that once you become a believer, somehow you've got everything all together, you've got all the answers, and life should be fine all the time. And if it's not, you have to be reasonably stoic about it and just put on this brave, resilient face that our armor can never be chinked, that we just have to be able to withstand whatever comes our way. And it's just not true. Now, I'm all for positive thinking. I'm all for focusing on what's going well in our lives and focusing on where we want to be and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is life's just not always like that. That is just not the reality of everyday life. There's a company in the States called despair.com. You might have come across them. And it's kind of the whole company, really, is like a critique of that motivational merchandise idea. You know, you have those posters and mugs and everything, and it's all leadership and aspiration and inspiration and all these ideas. So these guys have come along and basically created exactly the opposite, called despair.com. And they will roll out these merchandise that just have these bleak and negative statements about the realities of human life. I've got a couple here just to show you. I thought these were great. Uh, one is ambition. I have to turn around and read these. Throw them up on the screen there, Andreas. I thought I had it written down in my notes. Ambition. The journey of a thousand miles sometimes ends very, very badly. <laughs> Is it, like, this could be a poster on your wall of your office. All right, what's the next one? Persistence. It's over, man. Let her go. <laughs> Isn't that great? All right, here's my personal favorite coming up here. Despair. It's always darkest just before it goes pitch black. <laughs> You can seriously go online, despair.com, and order these for your friends and family. Mugs, posters, whatever you like. It's actually quite good because it's sort of therapeutic to laugh about it, isn't it? It's sort of quite refreshing to just say, actually, sometimes life does stink, and that's okay. And I think, in a way, this sort of stuff is more motivating than a lot of when you get cliches and just trite little lines that get rolled out. And the problem, I think, in Christian circles is that because we're not particularly honest a lot of the time about the real nitty-gritty pain and struggle in our lives, we tend not to be very honest with God about it either. I think this is borne out a lot in the worship songs that we sing. It was interesting this week, Ryan, who's leading worship today, said to me, he, he was looking for songs that echo this theme of lament and sorrow. And basically, we drew a blank. You look down our song list, and they're just not there. They, they, we just don't have these sorts of expressions. I was listening to Paul Windsor from Kerry Baptist College talk a little while ago, and he was comparing the moods of worship music to the seasons. So summer would be songs that are really up-tempo, really victorious, really bright, happy-clappy, uh, got this great Jesus thing going on songs. And then winter would be much more you know, lamenting and pouring out expressions of pain and crying out to God for help. And he made the insightful comment that in, in contemporary evangelical churches, we tend to do summer really well and winter really badly. We just don't have the songs for the winters of life, even though winter is an inevitable part of the human existence. And at any given time, there will always be many of us struggling and carrying heavy burdens. Soon after September 11, uh, a worship leader named Matt Redman was traveling through the States, worship leading in a whole bunch of churches and just helping uh, heal some of the immediate wounds that came out of that tragedy. And he realized that in the US, very few songs really gave expression to what people needed to be able to say to God at a time like that. He made this comment, as songwriters and lead worshipers, we had a few expressions of hope at our disposal, 
but when it came to expressions of pain and lament, we had very little vocabulary to give rise, to give voice to our heart cries. I think that's very true of church, and it tells us something about what we think somehow Christianity is all about, that it's always upbeat, it's always happy, we've always got to put on the cheesy grin, even if it's through gritted teeth, and roll out these cliche lines to one another when things go badly. And I think Psalm 13 just cuts right across that. It just gives us something completely different, this unedited cry of pain and disgust with the situation and absolute inner turmoil. David asks these four questions, all of which begin with, how long, Lord? How long? And the first is, how long, O God, will you forget me forever? You know, this is not really polite language, to be honest. This is almost accusatory. This is almost sarcastic. You know, God, are you having a memory lapse? What's going on? You forget me forever? Have I, I just slipped to the back of your mind? What's happening? You know, we're not really comfortable with David speaking like this, are we? But this is exactly what he said. How long is this going to go on for? God, you know what? Days, weeks, months, years? What are we talking here? How long, God? Second one, will you hide your face from me? You know, this idea of God hiding his face was the idea of him revoking his blessings, sometimes even hiding his presence from people. And this is exactly what David is saying has happened. God, you've, you've just hidden your, your, your face from me. You've revoked all blessing. And how long is this really going to go on for? How long have I got to put up with this mess in my life? And he goes on, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? You know what we call this today? Depression. I wouldn't be all surprised if a clinical psychologist interviewed David at this time and diagnosed him medically with clinical depression. That's exactly what we're talking about here. You know how many Christians struggle with depression today? Just countless numbers. It is such a reality in our churches. But for some reason, we feel kind of awkward about that issue. We kind of feel the need to suppress it because surely Christians should always be on the up and up. Everything should be going up and to the right. Good, 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 better, better, better. And depression is just something we can't really handle. And here is the greatest king of Israel saying, every day I'm wrestling with my own personal demons. I'm wrestling with the sorrow in my heart and this incredible anguish, this depressive uh, mood that I just cannot get out of this incredibly unbearable feeling that is just suffocating me. And then finally he cries out, how long is my enemy going to triumph over me? David can't even do his job. This is his job to protect the nation from the enemy on Israel's doorstep. And he's saying, God, we're getting hammered. We're getting nailed by the enemy. How long is this going to go on for? This is not a nicely worded little speech of praise and thanks. David is ticked. You know, he's mad. He's grumpy. He is despairing. He is in anguish. And honestly, you know what? That's okay. It is okay. And we have got to get past this idea that we've got to choose our words a little bit more carefully than that with God. That we can't somehow be this honest with God. We've got to be a little bit more dignified with God. No, we don't. We don't. We can come into the presence of God. He already knows exactly what you're thinking. He already knows exactly what you're feeling. It is okay to pour out your heart in lament and pain and sorrow and just let it all out to God. You don't have to be God's public relations agent. You know, it's something, we've got this idea in our mind, we've got to protect God because we don't want to implicate Him. We don't want to make Him look bad. We've got to protect His reputation, make sure He always comes off looking really good. You know, that's not your job. God can deal with His own PR. You worry about just being brutally honest with Him. Don't worry about editing and glossing your words. Just tell them what's going on in your life. It's okay to doubt. 
It's okay to get angry at God, isn't it? He's pretty, he's, he can take it. He's a big boy. He's got broad shoulders. He can deal with your anger. He can deal with these cries. You know, God can even deal with your questions. I think David here gives us a mandate even to question God. Now, it might be controversial, but I think this is what you see. You see it in the book of Job. It's okay to question God. Not arrogant, belligerent questioning, but questioning that arises out of desperation. Questions that acknowledge, I don't have the answers in this situation. And in a sense, I don't even want answers. I just want to ask the question because I'm mad and I'm frustrated. And what I don't need is a bunch of Bible verses thrown in my face and the old cliches trotted out again. This too will pass and everything's going to be okay. Everything happens for a reason. Blah, 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 blah. You know, no, we don't need it. What we need is to be real. What we need is to give each other a shoulder to cry on. What we need is to weep with each other. Look at what Jesus did when he went to the tomb of one of his closest friends who had died, Lazarus. What did he do? He didn't start quoting Bible verses. Didn't roll out a theological argument about why a good God would allow suffering in the world. No, what did he do? Jesus wept. He wept. He felt the full force of the pain and the sorrow of coming face to face with the death of a loved one. And he just took that on himself. He absorbed it. That's the full human experience. And friends, I'd suggest to you that we need to give each other permission to lament and not feel like we always have to have all the answers. The Christian faith is not some nice little tidy theological system with a bow around it that's just got every answer for every question you've ever had. It doesn't work like that. It's a journey, and it's a hard journey, and pain, crying, tears, mourning are central to what it means to be a Christian this side of eternity. That's the world we're living in. And the best thing we can do is be there for one another through those times, to be real about it. Philip Yancey spoke on the campus of Virginia Tech a few weeks after the Virginia Tech shootings earlier this year and gave this sermon uh, named after the title of his book, Where is God When It Hurts? And he said this in the context of that sermon, In considering how to begin today, I found myself following two different threads. The first thread is what I would like to say, the words I wish I could say. The second thread is the truth. I wish I could say that the pain that you feel will disappear, vanish, never to return. I'm sure you've heard comments like these from parents and others. Things will get better. This too will pass. You'll get past this. Those who offer such comfort mean well, and it's true that you, what you feel now you will not always feel, yet it's also true that what happened on April 16, 2007 will stay with you forever. You are a different person because of that day, because of one troubled man's actions. See, that's honesty. That's giving people a license to lament, giving them the freedom to experience the winter of life in its full force and not just feeling like you've automatically got to turn it into summer. We need to give each other that freedom. We need to learn to be able to weep and to pour our hearts out as David did. And then look at what he does next. In the next couple of verses, David prays this prayer. After all of his how long, how long, how longs, he says this. Verse 3, Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. You know, a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 63, we talked about how David was deliberately not praying for what he needed at that time, putting his immediate needs aside. Here he's doing pretty much the opposite. 
He's just praying for exactly what he needs. Give light to my eyes. This is the idea of the eyes glazing over before someone dies. And it's a very real possibility that David was in danger of his life right here. And he is crying out to God directly to intervene. God, get involved. Answer me. Hear my prayer. And again, for some reason, I think we have trouble praying like this as Christians. We feel that we've got to pray these qualified prayers to God. Do you find this? You've got to pray these kind of restricted prayers with all these provisos on to protect God's reputation. So it's kind of like, God, I really pray that you would heal me, but only if it's your will and in your time and in your perfect way and your plan, hallelujah, forever, amen. You know, this kind of idea, you know. The reality is, guys, God approaches us as his children and he invites us to treat him as his father, as our father. Now, which of you have a child who has said to you recently, Dad, Mom, can I please have a lolly? but only according to your will and in your perfect time and your way, and I know that you have a perfect plan that you're working out. They don't say that. You know, it's like, give me a lolly now. I want this. Now, that might be a little bit too demanding, but this is the idea. God actually invites us to ask him for what we need. And I think you get an example of this in James 5, where James says, those of you who are sick, pray, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Now, there's no promise of automatic healing, but there is an invitation to pray directly for what it is we need. It doesn't say pray that if it is God's in the perfect time and plan. No, 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 that's all that's, all that's assumed. But you just ask God for what you need. You ask Him for what it is that is in front of you at the moment. There is nothing wrong with that. You don't have to wrap cotton wool about it. You don't have to choose your words carefully. Just tell God how you're feeling. He already knows what you need. He already knows the cry of your heart. He knows every word that's on your lips before it's ever spoken. So just ask him, look on me and answer, God, I need you to get involved in this situation. And then the real crunch of this psalm is the last couple of verses. And it all turns here on the word but in verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. As I was preparing this message, I did a little bit of research into some other ancient uh, lament poems because it, it wasn't just Jewish people that were writing laments at the time. In fact, people believe that the lament poem is one of the oldest forms of poetry that we have dating way, way back in the ancient Near East. Ancient civilizations would cry out to their own gods in similar ways. And so I started trawling through and reading um, extracts and samples of ancient laments that have come to us from other cultures that archaeologists have dug up and so forth. And what is interesting is, for the most part, these other uh, laments from pagan societies follow more or less the same structure as Psalm 13. There are these cries of despair, these cries of anguish, help me, this is going wrong, that's going wrong, my city's been destroyed, whatever it is. And there would be these petitions to the gods, pray, I, I need you to answer, I need you to get involved. And then sometimes this, this glimmer of what might happen if the gods did get involved. But as far as I searched, and I don't want to make a conclusive statement because I need to do more research, but as far as I could tell, there, is, there was nothing in any of these other ancient lament forms that looked like verse 5 and 6. There was nothing else because here is the psalmist sitting back and saying, even God, if you don't get involved, I'm still going to trust because I've still got something to trust in. That is, I think, what marks off Judeo-Christian lamenting from every other type of lamenting. Because with these ancient Mesopotamian laments and these things, it would be, God, I, I need you or the gods to intervene. 
And if they do, your lament is successful, and if they don't, your lament is a failure, and that's about as good as it gets. If they don't get on board with your cause, if they don't uphold you as a righteous sufferer, you are stuffed. You're just going to wallow in your own despair, and things are going to go down and down and down. And this, I think, stands in contrast to what you see in Psalm 13, where David, having poured his heart out to God, having asked all these questions, having prayed for exactly what he needs, sits back and says, but... I trust in your unfailing love. And this idea of unfailing love, it's the word hesed, such an important word in the Old Testament. It, it doesn't really carry so much the connotations of love that we think of, the emotional ideas. It really is probably better translated covenant loyalty. And always this word hesed would draw the mind of the reader back to God's original saving act, God's great act of deliverance, which for them was what? The exodus. This was when God demonstrated his great power in drawing his people out of slavery, redeeming them and bringing them into the promised land. And the implication is if God was so good to us back then, will he not be faithful now? Has he not got a purpose in this? Will he not redeem this situation somehow? Is he not with me, even in the midst of this darkness and blackness and despair? And for us now, standing on the other side of God's work in Christ... This idea of hesed, this idea of God's unfailing love should draw our minds back not to the exodus but to the cross. God's great saving act in the New Testament. And it's interesting when you think about the cross because here is Jesus hanging on a Roman cross one afternoon. And we have recorded in the gospel some of the final words that he spoke as he hung there. These statements as he gasped his final breath. And you know what one of them was? It was a cry of lament. In fact, it was drawn from a psalm not too far from Psalm 13, Psalm 22. And you remember the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was the great lamenter. And for him, this wasn't just an experience of God's hiddenness. This wasn't just, I feel, I can't feel your presence right now, God. God the Father had really, truly revoked his presence from his Son in this moment. He had withdrawn his spirit. He had truly turned his face away from Christ on the cross in this moment and hidden himself completely from his son. This is not what you and I go through today. This was a unique event, God the Father rejecting and forsaking really and truly his son. And Jesus died a death apart from God. His lament was a true lament because he truly experienced utter abandonment on the cross and his cry was a cry of complete desolation, complete dereliction, that he was utterly, utterly alone. Why did God the Father do this? So that every lament after that event could end with verse 5 and 6. So that you and I could sit here this morning and still be able to say, but I trust. It's like that old song by, by the newsboys, Amazing Love says, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. God purchased for us on the cross freedom from ourselves, freedom from sin, freedom from slavery to a world that is heading to hell and redemption in the kingdom of God. This is what God has done for us. And as we meditate, even in the midst of the blackness of life on the cross, our thoughts should be led to say, if God has been faithful to us then, will he not 
also be faithful to us now. Even though in this moment I might not sense his presence, even though right now I might not feel his power and I might feel completely and utterly alone, I know that because of what he has done on the cross, because of his loyalty, because of his said to me, that he is with me because he has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. He is with me even in the blackness. He's here comforting me. He is here holding me in his arms. He is here speaking words of comfort and love and life into my soul, even in the depth of this valley. That is the reality we have to hold on to. This is why David says right at the end of the psalm, for he has been good to me. Some scholars are so perplexed by that line, they think it must have been written afterwards. Because how can you get right through Psalm 13 and then say, but you've been so good to me, God. And so they say, well, this is a later edition. Once things got better, he came back and made this little addendum. There's no indication in the psalm that that's the case. No textual implication there. This is a line that David wrote in the middle of the valley in the middle of the blackness, in the middle of this depressive state, for he has been good to me. Literally, for he has dealt bountifully with me. How many of us can say that? It's not just referring back to good times previously in our life. It is thinking back for us to what has happened on that vacant cross and that empty tomb. That is where God's goodness was supremely revealed in Jesus Christ. That is where he indicated once and for all his intentions for us, redemption, life, and not death. And so after we have poured out our hearts, after we've asked all of our questions, after we've complained and petitioned God, as I think Psalm 13 gives us full permission to do, this psalm asks a question back at us. And that is, can you take those final two verses on your own lips. Can we say at the end of it all, but I trust in your unfailing love because you have been good to me on the cross and the empty tomb. Your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. It's okay to cry out to God, Lord, I pray you would deliver me from this illness that I've faced for so long. But even if you don't, I still trust. Father, I pray that you would bring home my, my prodigal son, my prodigal daughter, but even if you don't, I will still trust. Father, I pray you'd get involved in my marriage and sort it out because it's a mess, but I still trust in you because you have been good to me. See, what's, what is it for you? What's the how long for you? How long, O oh Lord? How long before you bring me a husband? Before you bring me a wife? Maybe that is the cry of your heart this morning. And that is okay. And can you then get to the point of saying, but I still trust. Your grace is sufficient for me. Perhaps it's a, a cry for children this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd bring us a child. But I trust in your unfailing love. That's what it means to really lament. That we're able eventually to get to verse 5 and verse 6.
and not stay in verses 1 through 4. And we know, friends, that lamenting really is okay because one day God is going to restore all things. We know it's okay to shed tears in this life because one day God's going to wipe away every tear from my eye and from yours. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they will be what? Comforted. Maybe not in this life, maybe not directly, maybe not by having all of our problems solved, but one day on the new heaven and the new earth, that future that Jesus purchased for us on the cross will be a reality and will dwell in God and there will be no more. Revelation tells us no more mourning, crying, tears or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. And so that stands out in front of us as a picture of the future, not a fantasy world, but a real place, a real future, a real day that will one day dawn. And until then, friends, we need to learn to do winter well because it's going to come. And some of you are in the middle of it this morning and some of you are riding high in summer right now, and that's great. And I'm not the voice of doom, but we all know the seasons ebb and flow in life. And there's no point, it's an immature approach just to try and stay at summer all the time. Always happy, clappy thoughts, always cliches, always textbook answers. No, winter is going to come, so let's learn to do winter well. Let's learn to lament. Let's learn that when one part of the body suffers, we will all choose to suffer together. Because that's what it means to be the body of Christ. I want to finish this morning by asking a friend of mine, come on up, Teo Sushniak. Teo's my uh, life group leader and good buddy. And I'm going to ask him just to share some of his story as we wrap up today. Do you want a stool, man? No, I'm not too I'll get you a mic. All right. Hey. <laughs> A couple of weeks ago I had lunch with Reuben and he told me he'd be preaching on Psalm 13 today. He said it was a psalm of lamenting and despair and that as soon as he read it, he thought of me. <laughs> Thanks, Reuben. My name is Sam and this is my story. I was born in Yugoslavia, a country that is today called Croatia. Though my parents were aware of their Catholic heritage, the home I was brought up in was not a Christian one. My parents had great ambitions and expectations for their only child. And even more so once we immigrated here when I was nine. At a very early age, I started playing tennis. My parents were convinced I was going to be a world-class tennis player and then invested everything they had to realize their dream. I was only too happy to go along with it because I realized this would be the only way I was going to feel love and acceptance from my father. You see, my father was a very distant dad, and the only time I felt love or got attention from him was when I performed on a tennis court. This would shape my life forever. I learned early on that love was to be earned through effort and performance, and tennis was going to be my way of getting what I most longed for. Tennis became my life, and before long, also my profession. There was no room for friends or normal adolescents. Even school had to be sacrificed. There was just a strict regime of training and traveling abroad to tournaments. When I won, I felt loved. I felt like I was someone and I had self-worth. When I lost, the world would unravel. 
This would cause me to develop an, an anxiety disorder. At 20, I gave my life to the Lord while playing a tournament in Croatia. It was my first time back since we immigrated, and it humors me to this day how the Lord took me back to the country of my physical birth in order for me to be born again spiritually. But even after I became a Christian, the constant cycle of great highs and lows doing something I didn't really want to be doing continued and took a toll on me. The inevitable happened at 21 that ended my career. I suffered burnout, and though I was at the peak of my tennis career, I could go on no more. After my tennis career, I really struggled to find my place in life. Even though I was a Christian, I didn't understand in my heart God's grace and His unconditional love for me. The scars and the holes in my heart remained, but I was not equipped to face up to them yet. After I graduated from university, I embarked on a new career path. This road finally put me on a course for an appointment with God and His surgery. I suffered a mental breakdown at work two years ago. I could no longer cope with the anguish that was causing my anxieties. I developed clinical depression and had come close to committing suicide. I felt abandoned by God and struggled to believe that this could happen to a genuine believer. Something must be wrong with my faith, I thought. I had not been a good enough Christian and God was not pleased with me. This painful event opened the door for him to begin a great work in my life. God placed some special people from amongst you in my life who would help me to see him better and I'm forever indebted to them. Bit by bit, God began to restore truth in my life about his love, his acceptance and my worth in him. God has shown me that in Him, I truly can have a Father I've longed for and that He can set things right. But I'll be real and honest with you. My struggle for healing and wholeness still continues and will likely only be completed in the next lifetime. My anxiety disorder still wreaks havoc and depression at times doesn't seem far away. There are plenty of days when this journey and the dark times simply don't feel like they're worth it but I convinced myself to march on. As God is restoring me, He has also restored my relationship with my dad. My dad gave his life to the Lord a year and a half ago. And last year I had the privilege of baptizing him. God truly has been faithful all along and his love constant and steadfast. Mm.